truly think about this. We choose to define something as our inaction. We choose to say, I didn't do this one thing, and that is the action. That doesn't work. It's an inaction. This is asking for action. Kingdom come will be done on earth. And then guess what? His will only happens through the willing. We're doing right here in this whole endeavor of the vault. We're taking all four gospels, paralleling them, and looking at everything that was uh, written and said by Christ. Okay? So... We looked at, last week, started off with the Sermon on the Mount, and who's heard of the Sermon on the Mount, okay, and the Sermon on the Plain, who's heard of that one? Anyone who was here last week, everyone else was like, wait, what, there's a Sermon on the Plain? Yes, it's commonly referred to as Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, but it is given on a plain. He says they've come down a mountain, and we discussed this, the first three paragraphs in the notes are the same from last week. I want to go ahead and put these in here, just so we could kind of see. So what we're reading is basically... Jesus's first recorded full sermon, and it's kind of the longest one. The things we have before that, it says Jesus goes around teaching and preaching, and it summarizes the whole thing in one statement, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus got really long-winded, which just means I'm like Jesus, okay? And he decides to speak for three chapters. And Matthew records this, and it's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, and it says that they go up this hill, or this mountain, rather, for Texas, it's definitely a mountain, but this, this big kind of hill, and they're up there, and he gives this message, and Matthew records the whole thing. Now, in Luke's gospel, when we look over at Luke, Luke says they're coming down from a mountain, and then he gets to the plain, and he meets some people there, and he gives this whole message. It's super similar. They have almost all of the same ideas, Matthew's is a little bit longer, has a little bit more detail, a little bit more things in it that Luke's doesn't have. Luke's kind of says it slightly differently, but as a whole, it's the same thing. But what does seem to happen is the way Luke presents it and Matthew presents it kind of are almost differing from each other in this way. Luke would say, woe unto the man that does this thing, you know, like maybe, I don't know, like woe unto the man that fills his belly. And what that's referring to is like lives life for the fullest now, but not for an eternal purpose. Whereas Matthew over here may say, blessed is the man that searched for the, for the spirit of God or something like that. Make sense? So they're saying the same thing. They're just approaching it from two different perspectives. And it does lean us to believe that these are actually two different times that Jesus said almost the same thing. If you guys think that Jesus gave one message one time and then you're just like, I'm not going to repeat myself. You guys, y'all recorded that, right? Can you imagine how fast you'd have to chisel no, that's not how it worked, right? So what, 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 what we see is he probably repeated these things. And either these two accounts are the account of the same thing, with slight variances because they just recorded it differently, or it's basically two different messages, same message given at two different times. It does seem, based off of the kind of chronological layout of this, that these messages were given like back to back. It seems like if you take the two and overlay them together, that Jesus was up on a mountain giving a, a, a message and everything like that. And as you guys, we think like, oh, Facebook post, let's go there. And everybody's there at the same time. That's not how it worked. People would have learned he was there. They stayed there for days. And so they're coming down the mountain. It seems like it paints this picture. If he gave the whole message, they're coming down the mountain and then they meet this other group of people. And he's like, all right, we're going to do it again. And he teaches again at the end, at the bottom, at the base of the mountain. That's what it kind of seems to point out to us. Now, why is that important to know? It's just so you know, when you're reading the gospels, a lot of times, this is one of the biggest, the biggest, dumbest things 
that people will argue, people of faith and not of faith, they'll say, well, the gospels contradict themselves. And they actually don't. There's actually not a place one that if you compare them properly to where, like, you can't just compare verse one, verse one and be like, look, they don't say the same thing. Well, of course they don't. Like, that would be like saying if we all told the same story right now, if I said, stop, now everybody write down everything I just said. Some of you are like, I already forgot what we are talking about right now, right? And y'all are like, I'm going to pull a John and just kind of just pin it in my own little way, you know, <laughs> right? So, so we want to understand this to where we can accurately understand the gospel message that has been given to us through this, but we also know of the validity of the story, right? So that's why we're comparing them. And that's why we need to know when it's the same thing being repeated in slight variances and when it's a completely different conversation sometimes, right? Now, one of the other things I want to share, and then we're going to begin to read, and we're just going to pick up right where we left off last week. This is just to spin your gears talking about this Sermon on the Mount, is the last thing we need to kind of think about with this is who were they speaking to, right? It's very important to know who wrote it and who are they speaking to. There are times in which we're reading things of Christ and what he's saying, and he's speaking to unbelievers, there's other times he's speaking to Pharisees, so people who understood kind of points of high theology. And then there's other times he's speaking to just large masses of all kinds of people. And if you pay attention to who it says he's talking to, you'll actually start to see this interesting difference in the way that he says the things that he says. You'll actually notice that the harsher words that we read in Scripture, that's like, man, he just, Jesus was savage in that moment. And you look who he's talking to, he's talking to believers and to the, to the church folk. Can we say it that way? And then when you notice he's approaching it with this much more parable type concepts and this much more, you know, lost found, it's like, oh, he's speaking to like a large group of people where there's believers and unbelievers alike. If you notice that, there's an important reason to notice that because that can also illuminate to us how we are supposed to, to do things. And we tend as the church to have it reversed. We tend to try to be like, well, now we're all family and church people. Let's all be lovey-dovey. And then you sinner. And it's like, it's actually the exact reverse. It's more like, we're going to love on you and get you to the spirit of God. And now, hey, you're supposed to be a grown-up. Come on, get it, get it together. You know, why are we guys still changing your diaper? Come on, let's do this. I hit a little too close to home, Mike. <laughs> so let's jump into this Sermon on the Mount, all right, and Sermon on the Plain. We are walking through them kind of paralleling. So last week, we focused more on Matthew, and then we read what Luke had to say about it. This week, we're going to flip it, and we're going to focus more on Luke and then kind of see what Matthew has to say about it. There's two reasons for this. Number one, just so we can kind of get a balanced idea. Number two is Luke's is about a third the size of Matthew. So we can actually look through what Luke has to say, find it where Matthew says it in varying order, and then we're going to come back next week, and we're still going to be on this, yes, for a third week, and then we're going to go through and say, let's, let's look at what else Matthew had to say about this, okay? This passage right here, guys, just to show you the importance of it, as we finish reading through this, you're probably going to be like, oh, I knew that verse, oh, I knew that, but like, I've heard that, I've heard that, and you've heard bits and pieces, but never heard it as one whole, and when you hear it as a whole, it kind of gives you one whole breath of understanding of the kingdom of God. All right, good pretext, kind of getting your mind spun, spun up a little bit. 
All right. So we're going to look in Luke chapter six is where we're going to primarily kind of be here. Okay. It starts in this whole session uh, of, of Jesus speaking starts in verse 20 uh, there, which was what was commonly called the Beatitudes, um, where it's blessed are the blank, blessed are this, blessed are this. Now we already looked at Luke gave us some woes, meaning like instead of just blessed are this person, like woe to the person that does this. Matthew doesn't do it that way. Matthew has more blessed are those, right? So Matthew just focuses on that these are the, the, the positive attributes. Luke kind of says, here's positive ones and here's some negative side, the flip side of it. And they kind of matched up as we went through it there. All right. And then we kind of ended um, right here in Luke specifically. We ended whew, at verse 27. So we got from verse 20 all the way to 27. Now in Matthew, that would be ending at verse 13. And I just want to point this out, and then we're going to begin to read the new text that we're going to look at. In Matthew 13, some of us should recognize this little parable right here, which is, which you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its flavor, anybody remember salt and light? That was the little candle one, the one that Kim does not like. <laughs> Don't spit your coffee out. Okay, so, so th this is the salt and light parable. That happens right here in the middle. So think of it this way. Matthew's saying, blessed are these people, salt and light. Like, so these attributes are the salt and light. These two things are one thought. Now Luke, he comes to the end of that, of blessed are the and the woes, and he starts in on a different concept that is also in Matthew. It's just later on in Matthew. So we're gonna read Luke, and then I'll tell you where it's at in Matthew. If you're looking at the notes, Every one of them says, Luke, here's what we're reading. And it says, here it is in Matthew. So you can kind of co correlate them together. So let's read Luke 26. We've just heard about the blessed are those. These are the attributes. Y'all remember the, the toughest one for me was blessed are the meek. Do y'all remember that definition of meek? Oh, that was rough. Okay. So <laughs> let's continue on. So Luke 6, 27. But I say unto you, which here, love your enemies. And do good to those which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them that despitefully use you. And unto him that smites you on your cheek, offer also the other. And to him that takes away your cloak, forbid not to take away your coat also. Let's stop right there. Who's already finding this hard to... They took my coat, man. <laughs> I'm just saying, right? Like, just reading that without any further you know, breaking apart and trying to understand even more, it's already like, I have failed at every single one of those things. But isn't it awesome? <laughs> I'm looking at my wife laughing. I think this because she's thinking I did too. Uh, <laughs> but this is where the grace and mercy of God comes into play. Now, the reason I want to point this out right here and right now is because sometimes we can get into reading this and feel the harshness. That's called conviction, and that's a good thing. Condemnation, not a good thing. Condemnation comes from man. Conviction comes from God. And so when we see these things and it begins to convict us, that is a good thing. And what that should do is drive us to become more like Christ. And so that's why we must look and observe the grace and mercy of God and say, wow, isn't it great that I'm not being graded you know, <laughs> by, my, by my own stature? right? That's what we always must remember when we're, when we're looking at this and getting that conviction. It is, it is simply to drive us closer, not further away. Shame, I have to say this all the time, but shame has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. If there's a sense of shame that is a sense of condemnation, you run to the throne of grace. We talked about this on Sunday. It's not a throne of wrath. It's not a throne of anything else. You're like, well, God does have wrath. Yeah, sure. But it's 
primary characteristic, holy, love, grace, mercy, and it says the throne. The throne represents the authority that he reigns from. The way he reigns is through grace. So we have to understand that as we're reading this. Now let's continue on. Let's define some words here real quick. If we didn't get a little bit of conviction hurt so good yet, let's just see what Jesus was really trying to tell us by diving in a little bit more. Okay, What it's going to do, you'll notice, is not change the meaning so much as just deepen it and broaden it to help us understand. So the word here, so I say to you who hear. Now, I want y'all to, right now, in your brain, your Rolodex should be going, here, hearers and doers of the word, wise and foolish. You should be remembering all of this at this point. Because the word here means not just like I heard you, but it means like I perceive and understand what is being said. And now what's the next thing? Jesus gives us an action. Notice that every time you read the words of Christ, it's going to give something that you're perceiving or understanding, and he immediately asks for actions that follow. Immediately. He doesn't start with an action, so you earn this thing. He doesn't start with this and then leave you with no action. He does both. He says, listen, this is the characteristic. This is what draws us. And he says, now here's some action I need. So the action is to love your enemy. The word love here is actually the word agapeo. Not agape, but agapeo. And this is a derivative of the word agape. Who's ever heard the word agape love? Yes, one of the most popular words uh, of Greek that most people know if you're a believer because we put it on billboards. We talk about it all the time. We really have no clue um, what we're trying to say by this word agape. So let me do a quick breakdown, and then we're going to move pretty quick through the rest of this. I just want to give some, some baseline because this word love appears quite a bit in the whole of Scripture. It appears a lot in this message that Jesus is giving. Just as a quick little uh, side note, if you write nothing else down, you remember nothing else, and you want to stare at me blankly, at least get this. We can look at a concept that is mentioned throughout Scripture and say, if it's talked about more, it's probably more important. Who would agree? Like, right? Like, if you talk about something to your spouse a whole, whole lot, they probably are getting the hint that this is super important, right? Now, the next argument is, why do you think it's so important? So if we look at Scripture and we say, what does Scripture talk about the most? The word love, in all of its variations appears upwards of 500 times. It's like 429 times excerpting out certain types of love, but if you even add in that, it's like five. So this is huge. You know the next thing that matches up to it that's been talked about is the word rest. That's the next one. Do you know where like evil and all that falls? Like in the hundreds. So the primary thing we are to focus on is this concept of love and all of its variations. That's something that should speak to us. Now, what we tend to do is make love something it's not and add to it. We're really good at that. We're really good at kind of shifting and changing things around. The reason we're really good at that is because we really don't want to confront what it is in and of itself because it requires something of us. Because love is a verb. It's an action. It's something that must be done. It is not something that you feel. It is not something that you think. It is, an, it is a baseline action that you begin to perform. And that baseline action is, I do something that causes the betterment of someone else. Now think about that for a minute. I didn't say that you hope they fare well. I said that you actively do things that make them fare well. Right? <laughs> Let's think about that for a minute. So to say I love you is to say, I don't just have affection or desire towards you, right? Now, that could be, I could have affection, right? You know, like, I love Albie. I definitely don't love Albie the way that I love my wife. Very different. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
<laughs> Mike cannot keep a straight face. <laughs> You're right. Moreover, I love my children differently than I love Albie and my wife. Yes? Okay, so there's lots of ways of love, but the core underlining of all of them is this action word that means I am actively doing things that bring about your betterment. So think about that when you begin to say the words. I mean, think about it. We use the word love so poorly. Oh, I love Chick-fil-A. Are you actively doing things that cause us this betterment? Well, yeah, you're spending your money there. <laughs> so maybe you do love Chick-fil-A after all. But right, we use it as like, I desire or, or I enjoy. And is that a part of love? Sure. But something as a part of it is not the core of meaning of itself. It's an action. And if we can program ourselves in this, that I, it is an action to cause someone's betterment. Now, I didn't say personal comfort. Remember, don't, don't, don't conflate that. Someone's personal betterment is not always necessarily their comfort. Okay. Right? So, for instance, if one of you decided right now to take a screwdriver and be like, I wonder what happens if I stick it in that light socket and someone else comes and kicks you to get you away from it, that is an action that causes your betterment so you don't get shocked. The kick is, worse, is easier than the shock. You know, this may be a poor example, but it's just to help you understand. Betterment is not always comfort. Okay? That does not mean, yes, whipping your children, which you should all do. Uh, <laughs> No. So, right, so these, these actions of betterment sometimes could seem harsh. Sometimes that actually is not their betterment by being harsh in that way, right? Now all of a sudden you've led them astray and now they're hurt and now they won't listen to anything. So sometimes it is more soft. And see, this is where we get mixed up. We think we get to be the determining factor as to which one it is. And that's God's job. Now, so it's actions towards betterment. So there are three core types of love. There are actually seven primary, but there's three ones that we talk about a lot, and they're mostly mentioned in Scripture, okay? The reason I'm giving you all this is because as we read love throughout all the rest of this, most of the time when Jesus says it, he says this word, agapeo. But there are other ones that is these. So there's philos love. Who knows what the city of Philadelphia is called? The city of brotherly love. Philos. It's brotherly love. That's the love I have for Albie. That's also the love that I have for Kim and Ariel, all of you. It's philos love. It's brotherly love. We're like brothers and sisters. That's what scripture tells us, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ. It's philos love. That means the actions that cause your betterment are the equivalent that of a brother or a sister, which should be forsaking all else <laughs> to protect family and those types of things, right? And sometimes to help them not get in trouble with mama and daddy. So now put that in a spiritual context. Okay, so you have another one. It's called eros love. Eros love is where we get the word erotic. It is a sexual type love desire, but also with the understanding of being tied to a covenant. So this would be the type of love that is only reserved for my wife. It is eros love, not wholly physical, but also has that notion and understanding. And then there's this one, agape love, which everyone should know the definition is unconditional love. But what we do miss is this idea tends to carry an unconditional love in which we can never fully understand but are supposed to represent. It is kind of like this. It's a love reserved for God that your job is to try to emulate. So when we use it as if I'm full of this love, no, you're full of it. But it ain't that love. The idea is that this is something constantly striving because we can't even fully perceive it because we always have conditions. And we can sit right here and right now and say, no, I love my kids unconditionally. No, 
there can be something that they could do. I guarantee you. Oh, I love my spouse unconditionally. No, there's a condition in which, and you're thinking, yeah, they make me mad. No, no, I'm not talking about making me mad. I'm talking about now I no longer want to do actions that cause your betterment. So now think about right now how often we slip in and out of love constantly because we're quite inconsistent, right? Sometimes we're trying to actively cause someone's betterment and sometimes we're actively causing their destruction. There's another word for that. That's called a curse, which is the very next thing that's gonna come up as we read, right? So this idea of love is, has this, our only understanding is this affection desire concept, but its baseline is this action concept. And because of the actions and because of the thoughts I think towards you, some of you may be thinking of a scripture right now. Now I have good plans for you. But see, if my mind is never on you, I don't ever care about your betterment. Are y'all seeing this? I just also gave some marriage advice right there. Okay, so, so if you hear and perceive, then you love this idea. There's actions towards betterment. And who are the actions towards your betterment supposed to be? Towards your enemies. <laughs> now, moreover... This word enemy here means, yeah, one opposed to you. So one that is actively against you. So not like just against, but also actively against and opposing God, the mind of God specifically. If you look at that definition, it actually means you're opposing, but opposing the mind of God, which means the thoughts of God, which means you sometimes are your enemy because your mind opposes that of God's. Now, the next one is do good to those who hate you. The word good literally means this idea of of, of yeah, like we would say like good, like welfare, kind of a good, but it literally means something that is noble, excellent, beautiful, this idea of beautiful things, this idea that there is no room for blame in the situation. Think about this, just, that's a hard idea to think about. Like I'm supposed to do good. I'm supposed to do things that there is no room for blame in this situation. That's a pretty high bar to those who hate you. Now the word hate you right here literally means to detest someone like I mean and, and, and I love this it means to pursue with hatred <laughs> like not just like I'm indifferent towards you like I am actively going to find you and you know I don't know like blow up this church because that was that was that was said to have been wanted to be done at one point <laughs> uh, recently y'all were all in the building no <laughs> so and then bless those who curse you. Now, we're going to break apart a lot in these first two because they set the scene for what else we're going to read. I was told to take it slow. So if this takes us till, till Jesus comes, get it? <laughs> then that's what we'll study on. So if y'all get bored with this, just, you know, you need to check your heart on this. Bless those who curse you. Remember, we were just talking about this word curse. Now, if you remember from last Wednesday, who was here last Wednesday? Okay. Okay, last Wednesday, we talked about the Beatitudes, or blessed are the. That word blessed, we defined, if you remember, and it is not the same word blessed that's in the Old Testament. It's not the same word blessed right here. Two different words. The word blessed there meant like well-off and happy, like this is good, right? This blessed is quite different. This bless those who curse you is more akin, it's very similar to the Old Testament word and God bless them saying in Genesis 1, okay? So this is a pronunciation, a proclamation, it's saying something to be done over this person, right? Okay, so this is an action, it's not a state of being. The first one that we saw is like a state of being, well, bliss, that kind of a good thing, right? Like ecstasy, that idea of blessed is this person. This one is an action word in which you are supposed to do to the people who curse you. 
So curse in, in this context means someone who speaks against. Specifically, think of it this way. Someone who actively is wanting to see your demise and like maybe the one that's hating you and trying to bring it about. Does that make sense? So we're supposed to bless. We're going to define the word bless. Don't worry, but it. it's about to be a bombshell, okay? So, so shots fired, whatever the scenario you like to use to, 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 to lighten in the mood a little bit when this hits you, okay? So we're supposed to bless, whatever that means, the person who is actively pursuing and trying to do actions to cause your failure. Not just the person... Now, I'm going to leave that one hanging. Just keep thinking on it. So, you're supposed to bless them. What does this word bless mean? Okay, well, it means to proclaim something. Okay, well, it means to, 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 to proclaim and invoke a blessing of God. Okay, that doesn't really give us much more, right? Okay, what is a blessing of God? A blessing of God, because see, what happens when God says something is like it kind of happens. Like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of water, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Like, God said it was. Yes? So if it's a blessing of God, it's something to empower you to succeed or to cause your betterment, that kind of happens, right? So you are supposed to bless those who curse you. Now, the word bless here is a compound word. It takes two words and puts them together. The first one is to be well-off or prosperous. So that's how we know the context of what you're doing. What you are saying needs to be better off and prosperous for them. Okay? Are we catching this? Y'all follow me? I'm getting some evil stares right now, okay? But the second word, guys, this is the bombshell. And, and I, don't, I could talk all night about this one. The second word for this, it's a compound word that they put together, is the word logos. Now, some of you who have been following along with all of our studies over the last, this, you know, this series, prior series, every series... Specifically, when it comes to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word word, it's always fun to say, is the word logos. It's the same one. And if you read the full definition of the word logos, it doesn't just mean a word spoken. It means the words of God spoken, and which literally created the matter that you are. It is the Spirit of God himself, the person of Christ. So the well, better off welfare thing you're supposed to be speaking to those that are curse you are things of the Spirit. See, so we say bless, like bless. I say, I don't wish them any particular harm. That ain't blessing them. Oh, I hope they don't fail. That ain't blessing them. What blessing them is is saying, I am asking God and I am going to speak the Spirit of God over this situation and over that person, even though they just abused me and hated me and everything else. I am going to bring spirit to this situation. Do you see that? That is tough stuff. Now, remember what I said at the beginning, the grace and mercy of God. That is the beauty of it. Because it's like, I can think of so many times I have not brought the spirit of God to a situation. Matter of fact, Monday, guys, I brought everything other than the kingdom of God to my marriage. I was the devil. I literally was the opposition of God and my wife bringing the kingdom of darkness into my life. And I destroyed my entire day and hers all from my own just because I couldn't shut this thing. <laughs> Stop arguing about stupid things that didn't matter, that turned into huge things. 
Why? Because I could not stand with the spirit of God. And so grace and mercy says, let me come in and help you learn how to do that. But to do that, you've got to keep view of me at all times. Otherwise, you can't know how to love me and do action towards my betterment for the spirit of God in this, in this world if I'm not in view. Bless those. Speak spirit. Every situation that you come into, whether it's direct opposition towards you or inadvertent opposition to say, how do I? The first thing is to say, whoop, remember Snapchat filter, keep the filter, stop it and say, how do, how do I bring logos? How do I bring the spirit of God? How do I say the spirit of God? I don't have the answer. And then later on, we're going to find out that if you don't have the answer, just shut your mouth. It is better that we are silent. Hmm. So that, that's some tough stuff right there. Now, who curse you. We talked about that. And pray for those who despitefully use you. And this is the last super, super detail. And then we're going to kind of read some text and kind of look at it all together. The word pray means pray, right? That shouldn't be that complicated. It means literally to petition God and to talk to God. It means to offer them up, right? So a prayer, okay? But I like this word for, and I know that's like F-O-R, for, like not the number four, but F-O-R, for. So pray for those who despitefully use you. Despitefully use you literally means like to false accuse. It means to insult you. Despitefully use is actually one word in the Greek, and it basically carries this understanding, this idea of people who are constantly against you. Do you see a theme here? They're using lots of different words to just describe one concept. And then there's this other concept, which is this idea of blessed in the spirit of God. It's almost as if, which it is, so just a little hint there, is like there's these two things that are at war with each other. There's no in-between. There's, there's nothing. There is two things. There is this, and then there is this. And we either stand on one side of that at one time or the other. We're either the ones actively hating, pursuing, bringing that, or we are over here being the ones blessing, bringing the spirit of God. Y'all see that, okay? But when it says, pray for those who despitefully use you, that's one word that just means all of these insults, all of these false accusations, which by the way, that is also the definition of the word demon, Satan, the false accuser. So you see the, do you see the, the commonality here? He's saying all of those things. And we are supposed to, for these, for these individuals in which we are interacting with, pray for them. And here's how we look at this word for. And if you're looking at your notes, you can see I kind of put a little thought in here for you just to kind of think about. We think of it like this. Oh, I'm going to pray for them. All right, God, you better straighten them out. Have you seen Jeremy? And you talk to that guy. Straighten him out, God. I am praying for him. But that's not what that word for means. Not like for like I'm going to talk about it means like in the stead of, or in place of, meaning like he's not going to God and I'm not going to God about him. I'm going to God for him, like in place of him. <laughs> I told you, Jesus doesn't pull punches, guys. Rocky ain't got nothing. So pray for those. Now, Here's the other fun one, right? And if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. Uh, and, and if they take away your cloak, don't withhold your coat. So we're going to specifically define cloak and coat because it's interesting to me. The other part we're going to talk about, who's ever heard, turn the other cheek. This appears in pretty much two, three of the Gospels, this idea of turn the other cheek. And it comes up in lots of different ways, right? If someone puts out your eye, there's all kinds of ideas of turn the other cheek. What we mistake of this, what it means, is like just be a doormat. Just if they're beating you down, you just turn over and let them beat you down the other side. Just take it. And that's not quite what it means. 
what it really means is this carries this idea of no retaliation necessary. We actually see, we're going to see as we read, there's two times that Jesus is actually slapped in the face. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus is slapped in the face in two stories, and then they're telling you what to do, which is turn the other cheek. But Jesus doesn't say, well, you hit me on the other side because I really like my rosy cheeks to be the same on both sides. <laughs> That's not what he does. When he gets slapped, his, his, his response to a Pharisee who slapped him, did y'all know that was in the Bible? Y'all didn't know that. Pharisee slaps him, and his response is, did I say something untrue? No retaliation physically, no retaliation into you shouldn't have done that. The, the retaliation was, I, I just logosed. I just spoke the spirit of God. Was it not true? This is an idea of turning the other cheek, is this idea of which I, there's no retaliation necessary because the spirit of God is my protection. Do y'all remember the word meek? <laughs> Y'all seeing this connection, right? Because the word meek ended up with this idea of which I don't refuse anything. All the dealings that God has for me, I don't refuse. I do whatever he says to do, which means I speak the logos, right? And then if we look further on in all those beatitudes, there was this other one that says, oh, we're just going to, I'm just going to go to it. Sorry. I, just, I can't, I can't. Got to read it. Y'all said, take your time. Well, y'all didn't, but Mimi told me to, so. <laughs> Sinner. <laughs> this is recorded and she's going to listen to it. <laughs> so there's this, this other word in the Beatitudes and it, and it ends up meaning this, that you have no need of retaliation because you don't need any protection, any shield, because God is the one doing it. So this is the idea of turning the other cheek. No retaliation necessary. And then the next thing, and it's no coincidence that the next thing here about no retaliation, because God is the protector, you don't have to protect. You just, so it's not like being a doormat. It's just saying, hey, I, I don't need to retaliate against this because I already know. I know. I got it. Me and God, you do you because I'm doing, I'm doing him. I'm doing what he said because what I say to do and doing me is a bad idea. I don't know, this is off the cuff, like just not a part of our message, but I just want to keep saying this so we like we can trend on YouTube or something about the worst idea ever is you do you. It's a bad idea. Look at Genesis, that shows us that. They decided to do them, and now you are paying the price. Okay? <laughs> so but it's no coincidence, this idea. The next thing he says, and if someone takes a Cloak from you, don't withhold your coat. Now, I have no clue why in English they decided to use cloak and coat in this manner. Because the first word cloak means like your mantle or your shirt, your pants, right? Like we don't wear mantles anymore, but like the thing that goes over, your garment, right? So that's a cloak. Make sense? The next word, coat, which we are like, it's a coat, actually means your underwear. It's a much better way to phrase it. It's literally the undergarment, specifically the garments that touch your skin. So if you don't know how they dressed in those days, they would put one kind of a, a white cloth on that they would keep, and then they would put other things like the, the, all of the other stuff on top of it, and that was called their, their basically what in English now says coat, which in our day and age for sure doesn't mean coat. So it's like your skivvies, okay? <laughs> and so just think about this. Could you imagine listening to Jesus say this? He's like, and if someone hits you on the face, turn and give them the other cheek. And they're like, no. And he's like, and if someone wants your clothes, 
take off your underwear to we're a nudist colony. Like, no. What does this mean? He's saying, if they're taking that from you, you can be open and completely vulnerable because God is the protector, not you anyways. You don't have need to cover anything up. There is no shame. See, we just think it's like, go, go the extra mile. No, there's a part of that. That comes later on because he says, if a man asks you to walk one mile, well, it's not a mile, but, you know, walk one, walk two with him, meaning stay with him, stay with it. Yes, that's this idea. This idea is, yeah, take it further, but it's tied directly to this idea of turning in the cheek, no retaliation, no cover up. I don't need to. Now, verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. All I thought about when I read this was a trailer that went missing recently. We were using a trailer that was not ours. And uh, it was uh, Tony's actually in the church. And it got stolen. And we were going everywhere looking for it. And all I thought about was, was this. Not saying that it is wrong to go look for it, but... As I was reading this, God was like, how much did you look for that trailer versus looking for, I don't know, like me and other things? Like, like the amount of time, effort, and energy you spent on that. <laughs> and so I have the inkling that that's really more what he's trying to point out right here. Don't ask for back. Don't try to do that. A, because God's got you. But B, you're wasting precious time on natural things, and I need you to focus on spiritual ones. <laughs> And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Who knows what that sounds like? The golden rule, which is mentioned in Matthew. Matthew says it in like four verses. Um, Luke just kind of gives us this one little thought. Now, I, I, I like this actually right here because I feel like sometimes we hear these things and they're such, I don't know, like a cliche colloquialism kind of a thing that we just say and we're like yeah do unto others as you'd have them do to you but we never do um a and then b it's like let's just think about this i love this word would and likewise so in the king james it uses the word likewise in the esv version if you're reading that it says uh do so to them which would mean like likewise so it's just but the, the greek word here is kind of kind of interesting to me so do unto others would you would what you would do so like okay so what does this word would do it means literally that you have a mind to do that you desire to do that you would rather have so we always think like we take it in the negative sense don't do things to someone else you wouldn't want someone else to do to you which is yes one side of it but there's always another side to it it also means do Things for others that you would prefer people to do to you. See, we always think of it as a, well, I didn't, at least I didn't cuss them out because I wouldn't want someone to cuss me out. But how about like something you would want someone to do for you that they didn't even think about necessarily, but you would want it? Y'all picking that up? I don't think we are. See, like, meaning I observe someone and it's like, you know what? I would really prefer that in this situation. So I'm going to now go do that thing. For them. Almost like it's an action to cause someone else's betterment versus an inaction that I didn't mess up. Are y'all seeing the difference here? See, 
Thank you, Jeremy. Me and you right here, bro. We need to get in the truck again and drive for a few hours because every time we're in the truck for a few times, we have some good times. Wally eating lunch in the truck. If you don't have a good story, let's hang out. I don't have time actually this week. I got Arden weekend coming up and so do you. Uh, (laughs) Think about this. Truly think about this. We choose to define something as our inaction. We choose to say, I didn't do this one thing. And that is the action in and of itself. That doesn't work. It's an inaction. This is asking for action. This is asking for the flip side of that is to observe things and do them. Not, not do something because you already know it to be bad. That's kind of like the, the, <laughs> kind of like the easy one. Like you already knew. And so, yes, it is a little bit of a self-control idea, but it's more, this is not in the negative. Don't do unto other people th- something that you don't want done to you. It is do things that you would prefer, that you have the mind to do for yourself, but don't do it for yourself. Go do it for someone else. Now, I'm going to use one of the easiest ones. Okay. Who's ever gave food to, to someone in need, like whether it be on the side of the road, street, something like that, gave food, whatever like that. Who's also went and bought yourself food, obviously. Who's gotten yourself more food and then kind of gave less to the other person? Be honest. So let's use this as an example. I am not saying that just every person you see, like I'm going to buy you food and I'm never going to eat, but let's do what you would do for yourself for them and not for yourself. Because it doesn't say, and also do it for yourself. It says, do it for them. And it leaves it at that. So let's practice that one time. This week, try that. Something you're about to do for yourself, just be like, (laughs) go to a restaurant, sit down to go eat, buy food for someone else and sit there and don't eat. Just to illustrate to yourself, this is what someone else is better at means, even at my own duress. Okay, I know y'all are like, well, I don't have to do that to know God. No, you don't have to do that to know God, but you do got to do it to look a little bit more like Christ. Okay. Likewise, and I like this, it doesn't mean just do it also to them. Do it equally. In the same way, same level of care and devotion that you do things for yourself, do it for others. I told you, we just breeze over stuff sometimes in Scripture. Don't really meditate on it for a minute. Now, this next one right here. And give it every man that asks you, sorry, I lost my place because I was scrolling to the other scripture. Do it likewise for them. For if you love them which love you, what think you have you? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what think have you? For sinners even do the same. Verse 34. And if you lend them to them, sorry, whom hope and you hope to receive, what think have you for sinners also lend to sinners and receive as much as again? Let's pause right there. Now this phrasing in English seems a little odd. What think have you? Like, and you notice like, oh, think. T-H-I-N-K. I had to think about spelling that. <laughs> no, the English word is T-H-A-N-K. Like to think someone. But it's better understood in our day and age, if we define it by the Greek. The Greek word, I'm going to pronounce this uh, probably poorly, but it's charis, which is very, very similar to the word charity. They're derivatives of each other. This word here, 
literally means graciousness, gracious of speak, goodwill, loving, kindness, a benefit of, a gift of, a liberation from, divine influence upon a heart. That's what that word means. So if we replace that with what think have you, Let's think about what kind of grace do you have? What kind of divine influence do you have on your life? What, what, what it, and he's not saying like, can you define it for me? He's saying you don't have any. He's saying, guys, come on, this is easy. What is the difference between you and a non-believer if they will do the same thing you're doing? They will do the same level of, of, of quote-unquote good in this world that you do, then you have nothing you don't have divine influence on your heart. What do you have? You have the same thing that someone who doesn't believe. So then what's the difference? And then it begs the question of the modern day and age. What is the like, probably third or fourth thing that will come out of the mouth of speaking to someone who is either a non-believer or, acti- or an inactive believer, if we can create such a term? Uh, you know, Because by definition, you couldn't be a believer and be inactive. But let's just say someone who cognitively thinks about God. Maybe that's a better way to phrase that. What's the, what's like, within the first few minutes, they're going to say, well, I'm a good person. So I don't need all of that. Why? If the world can actively observe a believer and say, well, look, I do good things as an unbeliever. You do good things as a believer. And they can't tell a difference. Between the good deed that you do, good deeds are not enough. Which again, grace and mercy comes in to say, yeah, it ain't about how good your deeds are. But it's supposed to be, guys, because we always want to go to that. Like, what about, you're saying I have to work harder because it's not good enough for salvation? I'm not even talking about that. I am talking about you bringing the kingdom of God to this earth, which is what Christ did. And if you're not doing it, you're not being like Christ. So you're not a Christian. I'm sorry. Just you're not. You're a really good hypocrite, is what Jesus calls you. Uh, that wasn't my word. That was his. Okay, so I'm not the one who hates you or anything like that. We're not. <laughs> what this says, nothing about your salvation. This is saying, if you can look at your life and an unbeliever's life and the measure of good deeds are the same, they look the same, you react the same, there is an issue. What measure of, and I love that, divine influence is on your life? The answer is zilch. And that's why we need the Spirit of God. Because when the Spirit of God dwells in us, it becomes our focus. When these situations happen and these things happen that are inevitable, it is our opportunity, nay, our responsibility to now react and say, I'm not going to do what man says to do. Watch the kingdom at work here. And then people will be perplexed. They won't know what to do with themselves except for to ask if why in God's name, get it, why did you not do this? Why did you do that? Well, you're just being run over. Not at all. And then they're going to observe, well, they're not being run over. They're not upset about this. Oh, and you're like, I could never. Let's do a test. Everybody put a $100 bill out. I'm going to come take it. And you can't get it back. <laughs> it's just a joke, guys. But if you have one, you're, you know, just... <laughs> do you see this? So he gives lots of examples. He says, love those which love you. What divine influence is that? It's easy to cause someone else's betterment that's causing your betterment. That would be, by definition, just natural. Not supernatural, just natural. 
Then he goes on and says, do good to those who do good. What? Anyone will do good to someone who does good. You know, pay it forward. And I love it. He says, every time, even the sinners, and the word sinner here, just so we're clear, is the words, those who have dedicated their life to missing the mark. Now, see, we think dedicated their lives to missing the mark in the sense of like, they're like, yes, I'm going to miss the mark. I want to. No, most of the time they're unaware of it. It's your job to make them aware of it uh, in the way that God says to make them aware of it, not you pointing your finger, which we'll read maybe next week because we are running out of time. Uh, (laughs) I did not get near as far as those notes say, by the way, guys. Uh, (laughs) Those notes go all the way to the end of this section in Luke, and I've gotten through three verses. Uh, (laughs) But he says, even the ones who are dedicated to missing the mark, They're consistently missing the mark. Hit that. So that is not the mark of the high call, which is told that we must press towards, which if we must press towards it, there must be something actively pressing against us. Then he says, okay, the sinners do that. The people dedicated to that. Lend to those whom you hope to receive, meaning lend money to somebody, right? And then like you hope to get it back. He says, what grace is that? The sinners lend to each other, expecting to get it back. And I've always heard this phrase. My, this is something I've just grown up hearing. And I never knew it was scripture until literally like a couple weeks ago when I was reading this. I've always heard, don't lend somebody something you don't expect to get back. I had no clue that that was actually like kind of a spiritual idea and principle. And it's so funny, guys, because the few times that I've actually done this, I've done it more in my recent, in my recent years, but where I've just like lent someone a tool or something like that. And I just like, in my book... It's theirs. It's gone. Like, you know, I know they said they're going to pay me. If they do, cool. If they don't, they don't. Like, it's just not knowing at the time. It's so interesting how every time you run into that person, they constantly remember the debt. It's almost like it gives you an opportunity if you really ever get into it. Instead of being dumb, I had to pause myself for a minute. Instead of being dumb and having an opportunity, you use it as just an opportunity. Oh, don't worry about it. It's almost like it opens a doorway in which you can share about a debt you once have that you no longer had. It's almost like there's lots of parables that even tell us this in a story form. It's almost like Jesus was so brilliant that he even knew ways to get your dumb butt to have opportunities to share the gospel, but we don't because we're so naturally minded. We just go, yeah, don't worry about it, man. It's no big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. Because I had this happen once. Don't worry about it because of something I had happen. Oh, we don't, well, that's a little too traditional, Jared. Well, you know, the current way ain't working, so maybe we should try something that used to. Like in the book of Acts. Okay. I'm almost done. I know it's 8.07. I didn't know that till just a while ago when I looked at it, and then I realized. They lend and expect to receive. And then he wraps it up in verse 35. He says, but love your enemies. Do good. So he's kind of taking all these thoughts now, and he's saying, it's all one. But love your enemies, do good, and lend in hoping for nothing again. Not expecting anything back, ever. This is, by definition, the concept of generosity. And your reward will be great, and you shall be called the children of the highest. For he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Now what I want to... Talk through just real quick as this kind of wrap up, and this is where we'll stop is this verse 35 right here. 
Because then, well, we'll, we'll read verse 36, we'll read this together because that does end us up here. In verse 36, so the most high, for he is kind to the ungrateful or the unthankful and to the evil. Verse 36 says, and be merciful even as your father is merciful. Okay? Now we defined the word mercy and merciful last week. Go back to your notes and look at that whole detail and you'll be like, whoa, mercy is huge. But if we look right here, but love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Great would your reward be. And guys, guys, <laughs> I love how we insert so much naturalism, so much of our own lives into spiritual texts. And that has nothing to do with it. Most people hear this. And, and so I'm going to read it in the way most of us probably just heard this. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Because if you expect nothing in return, you're going to get something in return. It's going to be great. You're going to get money, and you're going to go to heaven, and it's going to be boom, rave party. That's your reward. And No, it doesn't. It says the reward is you will be sons of the Most High, meaning begotten of like your father, meaning the reward is actually to be like Christ. Are y'all seeing that? The reward for your Christ-like life is because now you're like Christ. That's the reward. And it says, and when you're like him, because see, the most high, he's kind to the ungrateful people. And then that's supposed to be a callback. These are brilliant writers. That's a callback to say, man, I'm, I've been ungrateful and unthankful. He has been. It's a constant, ever-evolving cycle. I was just having this beautiful conversation with Sharon. She's not in here. I thought she was going to be in here. I'm sad now. Okay, I thought she was in here this whole time. Uh, <laughs> I was just having this conversation with Sharon, actually, right before we had our own little mini church service. And when we were upstairs and talking, and we were kind of discussing some of this inadvertently, and it was like, and when I read the text, guys, it's an ever-evolving cycle that every time you hear something about the gospel or this good news, it ignites inside your soul, and it brings you back right back to the same place. And so we, sometimes we wonder, it's like, don't we just keep talking about the same thing over and over? This is boring. If it is boring to you, you have not got any glimpse of the Spirit of God at all yet, and I hope that you can one day, and you can become as crazy fast talking as I am about this because this is huge. These writers wrote it in such a way to say, now let me bring you back to the core motive behind it. Let me bring you back to the grace and mercy of God that took you. Just the fact that you're still breathing is the sign of his grace and mercy. It takes you back to simplistic baseline things that drives you to create fruit. But we read through it and, it, and we expect nothing in return but great will your reward be. It's like, oh, here's the reward. You're already back to expecting it. You're already being the ungrateful that he's still going to be kind to. You'll see this. This is a pretty brilliant little piece of text here that we are dumb and we just read it and we're like, whew, I paid my tithes. I think on God's calendar, that'll be 30 days and I'll see my reward. He works on net 30s. No. Did I get you a little bit there, Ariel? <laughs> it's telling us the characteristic of God at the end of this, while also calling us to remembrance is that we are these people still. But yet he doesn't ask for our perfection. He asks for our willingness and continuing to seek him above all else. And in this last word, ungrateful or unthankful and evil. And guys, I love the word evil. Because I love its antonym. 
which is the reverse of it. See, we read that word evil and we think sinister. We think manipulative, bad in nature, bad in content. We go down every path of every bad deed we can think of that we have not done. We definitely stop on that list if we've done it. We go down this, this, but that is a concept of evil, but it's not this word evil. There's two words for the word evil, and this one is the word peneros in Greek. Peneros means full of labors, annoyances, toils, grief. Pressed by burdens. That's what it means. So it says he's kind to the ones that's ungrateful and unthankful and the ones that are pressed down with this labors, annoyances, toils, and grief and all this. And he says he's kind to them because, see, the interesting thing is the way you become evil is by being ungrateful. And people miss this. The way you become full of labors, annoyances, and toils is by not being grateful and thankful. And it's almost like Psalms 100 says, enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving. And when I'm in the presence of God, last time I checked, there's not supposed to be any grief, labors, annoyances, and toils. But we don't realize the depravity of our evilness is actually from our non-view of God and, and his grace and mercy. And this is trying to call us back to that and saying, look at all of these things that I need you to do as the, uh, you know, I need you to, 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 to do all of these things. And in so doing these things, it actually creates a heart of joy because when you're oppressed, did you notice the, the repercussion? I've seen one of those things about those who hate you. And what, what does that cause? Grief, labors, annoyances, toils. What are you not supposed to do? Give me my money back. Why? Because you're worried and worried about it. It's just a natural example. It's not about the money. It's about the ideas. You're so focused on this. Now you can't look at him. And merciful, even as your father is merciful. Almost like we're supposed to be some kind of a mirror to like, what does a mirror do? It shows us a reflection, like an image of something. And it's almost like Genesis 1 tells us that we are supposed to be in the image and likeness of God. Ruling and reigning on this earth in the mannerism that he rules and reign and in Matthew chapter 6, which, oh, by the way, aren't we in Matthew chapter 5 and 6? Yeah, we're about to see something called the Lord's Prayer, which says, kingdom come will be done on earth. And then guess what? His will only happens through the willing. 